friends, welcome to another episode of Making Disciples. It's so good to be with you again on this discipleship journey. This podcast is all about exploring the things of the Christian faith in a way that we get, we understand, makes sense. It's normal talk, it's theology, but in a way that doesn't feel like you're doing deep theology, but we really are. And different episodes, we have different things. Some weeks it's an interview and some weeks like today, we're going to look at a passage from the Bible. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage that many of us, if you've been around the Christian faith for a while, you'll know it. If you're newish to the Christian faith, it's very likely you've heard of it. And it's a story that Jesus tells and it gets told and told and told and told and told. We get to the point where we know this story, we know this story. But you know what, friends? There's always something else going on in the story. There's always something else going on in Jesus' parables. The parables that Jesus tells, they're designed to be able to keep coming back to and coming back to and coming back to. And you find something new every time. That's the plan. That's what Jesus teaches them for. Uh, So there's not just one message of one of his parables. There's many messages. There's many threads that you can pull out. And this is why they're so amazing for teaching. You can teach a parable to a child, but you teach a parable to a 94-year-old and suddenly there's stuff for them as well. So that's what the plan is today. We're going to look at Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there's a danger as soon as I say the parable of the Good Samaritan, you go, oh, I've heard that one before. I know that story. Well, hopefully we might pull something out that you've not heard before or thought of. So I hope you enjoy it. Friends, welcome to Making Disciples. Do like, share, tell others about this podcast. But here we go. The Good Samaritan. What is Jesus teaching us about worship? So here we go, friends. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Now I want to start asking you a question. question is this, what is your worship made of when life gets tough, when time is short and you're faced by an enemy? Let me ask that again. What is your worship made of when life gets tough, time gets short and you're faced by an enemy? Worship or being a part of an act of worship, being a part of the church can often feel good when we're doing all right. But the moment we're exhausted, the moment we're weary, the moment we're strapped for time or energy, uh, worship can become something we really struggle with. We just don't have the capacity in us. It becomes more about us than it is about the one that we are adoring. I don't have it in me today to adore the God who worshipped and saved me. And the question, one of the questions that the Good Samaritan story does ask of us is what kind of worshipper are you going to be? Are you going to be a worshipper? that avoids or are you going to be a worshipper that allows God's interruptions in your life to be a part of your act of worship? When time is short, do you pass by? When life gets tough, do you retract from God? And do you know what? This is a really good question to be asking, particularly now during this kind of latter end of 2020 when the lockdown isn't quite what it was and got a little bit more time to travel and and visit people and, and do things, although it's still restricted. What does worship look like for you when you are restricted on time and energy? Uh, What does it look like for you? And Jesus tells us a story. And this story 
is a story with many meanings and many angles. And I love the rabbis when they talk about the Torah. Let me just explain this for a moment. You get 100 rabbis in the room, they'll all have something different to say about the Torah. Now, the Torah was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And what the rabbis would often say about the Torah is the Torah is like a diamond, like a gem. And when you hold it up to the light and you turn it, light reflects differently through it. So you can approach the Torah every day and see something new. And I think that image of the diamond being able to be turned every day to see something new is exactly what the parables that Jesus teaches are like. Now, firstly, people say Jesus is a great storyteller. He is a great storyteller, but he's also a great storyteller thief. Let me explain that. How can I say Jesus is a thief? Jesus was really gifted at taking stories that existed and putting a little twist on them, a little spin on them, changing the punchline, changing the character of something, and suddenly the story has a new depth, a new meaning, some new significance that we hadn't seen before. So Jesus is this crafted and gifted storyteller, and he takes a story that existed previously, and we talked about this in a previous podcast, so I don't want to say too much about it, but Jesus does take an old story that the rabbis used to, used to tell, and he, and he changes the ending of the story. He changes the third character in the story. You see, the original story uh, was the story of a man who's traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. And the little clue there, Jericho to Jerusalem, is on his way up to Jerusalem. So it's the start of the day. He's attacked. He's left for dead. And we're told that uh, three individuals walk by. So the trajectory we've got is from Jericho to Jerusalem. So it's the beginning of the day. So at the beginning of the day, this priest walks along. And sees the man. Now he can't help because he's got to get to the temple to lead others in worship. So he steps on the other side and walks by. The second person walks along. He's a Levite. A Levite helps serve the priest in the temple. Now he can't help because he needs to get to the temple to be a part of the sacrifice, sacrificial system. So he steps over the body and moves on. And the third person in the original story was a Jewish layman. And he did not need to get to the temple to uh, make a sacrifice in the same way the priest and the Levite did. So he actually worships in the street and he serves the man and takes the man uh, to essentially get well at the local hospital. So the original story was about knowing your place as a Jewish man in society. If you're not a priest or a Levite, then know your place. Your place, your place is to serve those the priests and the Levites don't have time to serve. And Jesus takes this story and twists it. He changes the end. He changes the end. So it isn't a Jewish layman that comes by, but a a Samaritan, a dirty Samaritan at that, the Jews hated, systemically hated the Samaritan. So he makes it one of the hated ones that is there serving. And he turns it and makes it into a story of systemic racism. It, it, it was there to reveal the hatred within the Jewish people. The moment he said Samaritan, the whole point was it was meant to challenge the Jewish people to see how they responded to this new ending. They would have hated it. They'd have booed. How can you say a Samaritan is going to be the one that helps? So he takes a story about knowing your position or place in society. He makes a little twist on it, makes it about systemic racism. Well, is that what the story is all about? Well, this is my point. This story has many meanings and many threads that could be drawn out. So story originally of the Good Samaritan is set in a, in a moment when an expert in the law, a lawyer, has come to Jesus. And as a part of this conversation, they end up saying, who is my neighbour? Uh, so it's almost like, in law, who is my neighbour, he says to Jesus. 
Uh, so it's all about knowing who your neighbour is and who you can love and who you can serve. So is that what the story is about, knowing your neighbour? Well, yeah. And it's a story about systemic racism. It's also a story about knowing who you're going to be. What kind of person do you want to be? How do you want to behave? Are you the kind of person that's going to step over or the person that actually expects the interruption and gets on your hands and knees to serve somebody else? And ultimately, friends, it's a story about worship. And I want to explain to you why. There's a little clue in this passage that makes the story about worship. And it's about how are you going to worship? So as we explore the story now of the Good Samaritan, I want to take a fresh angle on that this is a parable that's ultimately about worship. So it goes like this. Jesus turned to the lawyer. A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now just notice that for a moment. Jesus is originally, the story that was around before Jesus was about a man traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jesus changes it. Now it's a story about Jerusalem to Jericho. So this telling of the story is at the end of the day. They're going home at the end of the day on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. So Jesus has taken a story that originally started at the beginning of the day and he now places it at the end of the day. So the man has been attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. The priest, now the priest happened to gain down the same road. Clue, down. You talk about going up to Jerusalem. And when you're leaving Jerusalem, you're going down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a mountain on a hill. So the clue is, it's the end of the day. In other words, the priest no longer has the same excuse that he had this morning. Now, in the morning, his excuse was he had to get to the temple to do his sacrifices. Now it's at the end of the day. He's going home. He could help the guy and then still go home and get ritually pure. But the priest doesn't help. And that's what makes this story so interesting. Jesus has taken it and really hammered home. The priest missed the point. The priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Ha ha ha. That's, you know, you know the story. Well, I'm saying you know, but you know, if you know the story, you know that Jesus is using ridiculous humour here. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho or Jericho to Jerusalem is no more than a few feet wide. For the man, for the priest and the Levite to step to the other side of the road, it is complete humour. He's mocking them. They can't. It's very hard to avoid somebody on this road. They are almost having to step over his body. So the priest sees the man who passes on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So here you have two uh, Jewish leaders. One that's the priest in the temple and the one that serves the priest in the temple. And I just want to back up and pause here for a moment. And I'm going to give a little bit of the punchline away. But when the priest was in the temple, the Levite in the temple, there were two items that were used in temple sacrifice. In the sacrificial system, there was two liquids that were used as a part of that act of worship, oil and wine. When you thought about Jerusalem, you thought about the sacrificial system. Those two things went hand in hand. And during an act of sacrifice, the priest used two liquids as a part of that sacrifice. One was oil and one was wine. So if I was to say to you, as a good Jew 2,000 years ago, there's a priest and he's got oil and wine. 
you would automatically jump to, well, he's doing the sacrifices in the temple, isn't he? So what I want to do just for a moment is explain to you the significance of oil and wine. Because during the Old Testament period, the anointing of oil and the use of wine really summed up everything about what it meant to be a Jew as an act of worship. So let me explore this. I want to explore oil first and then we'll explore the wine. So as I say, in the Old Testament, the anointing of oil was an an essential part of the sacrificial uh, worship that happened in the tabernacle or in the temple. Uh, God had commanded Moses to make a special oil made from uh, olive oil and spices. And this was used specifically for the anointing of all of the instruments to be used in the temple act of worship, but also to anoint the worship, the act, the sacrifice itself, the animal that you were sacrificing. Let me read this to you. This is uh, Leviticus 8. It says that he sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times and anointed all of the utensils. Finally, to sanctify Aaron, Moses poured the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him. Then Aaron's sons were also consecrated in a similar manner. So oil here was used as a way of daily sanctifying and anointing the altar in Jerusalem. And it was anointed seven times. Seven amounts of this oil were poured onto the altar and to all of the utensils used as a way of um, making them sacred and making them holy and anointed. So oil had this significance and this importance in Jewish worship. Um, So a couple of other things just for you. So oil was used to consecrate and cleanse and make holy. So Leviticus 2 says this, Now when anybody presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil onto it with frankincense. Forget about the grain offering. You could just read that passage like this. Now when you're making or presenting an offering to the Lord, do so by pouring oil on it. So the command was, if you're going to give an act of worship, pour oil onto that sacrifice as a way of signifying, Lord, this is an act of sacrifice. And oil was used as as a symbol of mercy. You know, I've just talked about in Leviticus 8, where it says to anoint it seven times. Seven is the perfect number. And as the perfect number, you had to uh, anoint something seven times as a symbol of mercy of God's mercy. So oil came to represent the mercy of God, the consecration of God, uh, and I guess in in some ways, uh, the holiness of God. Oil uh, was uh, a part of um, this divine interruption into the mundaneness of life, the anointing, the oil was there to anoint and to ordain a moment that was that was holy and beautiful before the Lord. And then it says in Psalm 23, when God anoints you, your head with oil, uh, your blessings will always overflow. So God was in the business of anointing people and anointing altars using oil. So oil had this huge tie up in people's minds towards worship. Ezekiel 16, 19 says this, I bathed you with water 
and I washed the blood from you, and I put ointments on you, and I clothed you with embroidered dresses. This Ezekiel passage I just read is a prophetic image of what the church, what will happen with the church in the future through Christ's death and resurrection. God is in the business of bathing us with water, washing the blood off us and anointing us with oil as part of the way of consecrating the church. And this is a prophetic picture. Now you think of the story of the Good Samaritan for a moment. In a minute, we're going to tell the next part of the story where uh, a person anoints someone else with oil and wine and he takes them away to uh, make them well, dresses them and cleans them up. So Ezekiel is almost a prophecy of the story of the Good Samaritan. So that's oil, significance of oil in worship. The second part is the importance of wine. See, wine represented the forgiveness of sins. Uh, it was about protection from death. So if you remember the story from the Exodus, Exodus 12, God's people are living in slavery. God is in the business of liberating people from slavery to freedom. In the story, we're told that death is going to come. And death is going to come to interrupt slavery and this imprisonment in Egypt. And God says, death's coming. But what I want you to do is take the spotless lamb, sacrifice it and paint the blood of that spotless lamb, the doorpost of your homes as a symbol and sign that death is not welcome here. And death will pass you by because of the anointing of the blood on the doorpost of your house. And in the Jewish story, they retold this story over and over and over, not with blood, but with uh, red wine as a symbol of that blood. So red wine became synonymous with the sacrifice of the blood and the doorposts of the homes. And this is why when Jesus does communion for the first time, he takes that same cup that represented the blood of the spotless lamb. And he says, this is now my blood. It's like Jesus is saying the blood, my blood is painted on the doorposts of the universe where death is not welcome here anymore. So wine came to represent forgiveness of sin and the protection of death. Wine was also used as a binding contract. If you were a Jewish boy and you wanted to marry a Jewish girl, you would take a goblet of wine. You would say, uh, I want to marry you. You would drink from the cup. You'd pass her the cup and you would say, will you marry me? And if she was willing to, to fulfill this commitment, she would drink from that cup as a way of saying, I'm in. Remember Jesus when he says, let this cup pass from me? He's asking the question, do I really have to make a commitment to death on the cross? So wine was used as a binding contract. It was used in weddings, in the sale of, of land. Uh, you know the phrase, we'll drink to that, or I can drink to that. That is where that phrase comes from. Will you marry me? I'll drink to that. So wine became about a binding contract between uh, two parties. So here we have this story. So two, a Levite came to the place and saw him and passed on the other side. But here we go. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. In fact, the word there for pity isn't pity. He's, he's heartbroken. He's absolutely heartbroken for this guy. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, and he poured oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his donkey and brought him to an inn to take care of him. In that sentence... Jesus is giving us a huge nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You could ask the question, on this day, who worshipped 
properly. Who was a proper worshipper? Was it the priest who'd been in the temple giving sacrifices? Was it the Levi who'd been in the temple uh, giving sacrifices with the priest? Or was it the dirty, um, the dirty Samson, the dirty Samaritan? Well, Jesus here tells us that the only one of them who worshipped properly on this day was the Samaritan. He is the one who took out the oil and the wine. He essentially brought the temple to the streets. The Samaritan doesn't worship God in the temple. He worships God in the streets. The Samaritan worshipped on the road, not in the temple. You could say it like this. The Samaritan brought the temple to the man. The Samaritan is the one who's learned how to worship properly. He is the one who's taken the faith out of religious buildings and brought it into the streets. This is the kind of worship the Lord requires. Not the priest, not the Levite, but the one where we live out our faith Monday through Saturday. God is more interested in what your prayer life looks like Monday through to Saturday than he does on a Sunday. God cares for what life looks like on the dusty road of the workplace, the school playground, cutting someone's hair, going to the supermarket. Whatever you're doing, God is interested in what your worship looks like. Are you able to bring the temple worship to the streets? And that's what's going on in this passage here. And I just want to try and bring home for us for a moment how those original hearers would have heard this story. So I'm going to tell, retell the story. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, my wife. My wife and I are both church leaders at our church, Reverend Becky. And I've got an assistant at my church called Raf. And uh, they're going to play part of my story as the priest and the Levite. So here we go. Reverend Becky, she's on her way home. She's been out all day serving people, teaching people, lecturing people. And she's on her way home. And on the way home, she's passing a bus stop not too far from the house. And she notices at the bus stop, there's a man slumped over in the bus stop. In fact, this man looks incredibly hungry. And it looks like somebody's attacked him and stolen everything that he has. Reverend Becky looks at the guy and she looks at a watch and she realises, oh, hang on, Great British Bake Off. It's on in 10 minutes. I don't have time to help this guy got to get home if I'm going to watch Great British Bake Off. So she decides she's going to cross to the other side where he won't see her and she won't see him. Therefore, she can avoid the whole thing. So she does that. She crosses to the other side and she goes home. Moments later, Pastor Raff. Now he's coming. He's surely going to know what he needs to do for this guy. Now, Pastor Raff's walking down the road and he clocks the guy at the bus stop as well. And he looks at him and realises he looks hungry. And he's been attacked and beaten up. He's covered in blood. This guy needs help. Raph looks at his watch and he realises for a moment, Great British Bake Off, it's on in 10 minutes. I ain't got time to help this guy. So he decides he's going to cross to the other side of the road, walk along as fast as he can and hope the guy doesn't see him. Now a few moments go by. And there's a refugee who's not been in the country very long. He's walking down the road. Is the kind of guy that often gets looked at. Why did you come to our country? Probable, actually, that this refugee is even a Muslim guy. Not even a Christian. He's a Muslim guy. And he's walking down the road and he spots the guy at the bus stop. He realises he's hungry and he realises that he needs his wounds cleansing. So he goes and gets on his hands and knees and out of his bag, he takes two items. Bread 
wine. Taking the bread, he feeds the guy. And taking the wine, he wipes it over his wounds to sterilize them. He then picks up the guy and he takes him off to get him further help. You see, when I tell that story with the bread and the wine, what is it that comes to mind for you? It's the communion. It's the Eucharist. It's the family meal. It's the agape meal, isn't it? Bread and wine in our minds as as Christians takes us to the communion service. So the moment in the story I say that this refugee who's probably a Muslim gets on his hands and knees and takes out the bread and wine, you and I know what he's doing here is actually something incredibly sacred because he's involving sacred things. And the same is in the story of the Good Samaritan. When the Samaritan takes out the oil and wine, the reader goes, what? He's using the exact same liquids that are used in the temple by the priest and the Levite. Suddenly we see that the Samaritan, he knows how to worship. Whilst the priest may have been in the temple performing worship, he's not been doing worship. And here we have a guy that's not performing, but he's doing the very act of worship as he serves the guy with oil and wine. This is a new reading or a different reading on this beautiful story. What kind of worshipper are you going to be? Are you going to be one of those that loves the temple worship but never moves it to the street? Or are you going to be one of those who brings your worship into the streets with your own hands? Are you willing to make worship a daily activity? Are you willing to become the oil and wine poured out worship? So what's your oil and wine? What is it that's in your rucksack that you can bring out as an act of worship for others? Some of us, it's money. And when I say money, I don't mean because you're wealthy. But for some of us, we have got a clear call on our lives to use our finances as an act of worship. And for some of us, it's a penny and some of us, it's 50 pounds. I love the story of the widow's might. If you've never read it, go and check it out. The essential idea is it's not how much finances you give. It's the heart of which you're giving it. God doesn't mind if you're giving a massive charity check or a penny if your heart is in the right place. So what is your oil and wine? Is it money? Is it a hammer or electrical equipment? Is it hair scissors? Uh, Is the thing that you're gifted at and that you've got in your toolkit, hairdressing? Is it your mouth as you speak words of compassion to others or wisdom to others? Is it your mobile phone? I had somebody uh, say to me recently, Chris, I really didn't know how to worship during lockdown. I really struggled with the online stuff. Uh, I'm housebound, so I wasn't able to get involved with the food banky stuff. And I, I felt like I wasn't able to worship. And then she says, what I did do, Chris, was I was able to ring about five members, elderly members of our church every week just to check in and see how they were doing. Bingo. That is worship. Worshipping with your mobile phone, picking it up, calling somebody else. How are you doing? Let me talk to you about how your life is right now. Definitely an act of worship. Some of us are oil and wine is gift giving, being able to give gifts. Some of us it's about giving family support. Some of us it's about helping somebody to learn English. Some of us it's about uh, computer literacy. Some of us it's about generosity with the goods that we have got. There are many, many ways. Some of us 
We worship by the way that we can work with somebody else, helping them get out of debt. Uh, There are many different ways of worshipping. What is your oil and wine? What is it that you have got in your backpack that you can use as an act of worship? And that's where I want us to land today. What is your worship made of when life gets tough? When you are interrupted in life by something, how are you going to worship? When time is short and you're faced by an enemy, how are you going to worship? What is it you have got? that you can use as an act of worship. The Samaritan, it was oil and wine. What is your oil and what is your wine? And that's where I want to leave you, to ponder that one. What is it that God has given you that you can use as your act of worship? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this brilliant story. The story that Jesus steals and reuses and does something new with. God, we thank you for this story. Help us to see, Lord, what is our oil and wine. What is it in our hands that we can use to glorify you and to worship and honour you? What is it we can do that brings the temple into the streets? And we pray that in the powerful name of your Jesus, uh, your name, Jesus, would you reveal that to us, we pray. And all the saints said, Amen. Friends, I pray and hope that you found that helpful. Until next time, grace and peace.